At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It seems the great Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt, patriarch of the great Vanderbilt fortune, had a secret. Well, depending on the circle that you traveled in, perhaps it wasn't really such a secret at all. The Commodore was a spiritualist. He believed that he could communicate with beings on the other side. His departed son for one, his mother for another, but also that he could use spirits to influence and predict his business deals. But it seems that he was not alone. There were many people, famous and not, who wanted to communicate with the beyond. Whether just to heal an aching heart or maybe predict a very unstable future. Today's show, with guest New York historian and preservationist Anthony Beloff, will take a look at the beginnings and the rise of spiritualism through the 19th century. And we'll look closely into this story of how the Commodore became deeply influenced by one self-proclaimed spiritualist who also set her sights on becoming the first female president. Welcome to the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, a show that takes a look under the velvet ropes of the Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and late Victorian and Edwardian England. I'm Carl Raymond, your host. Now, when I think of communicating with the beyond, it always reminds me that when I was a very young Gilded Gentleman, I used to go over to my neighbor friend's house and we'd climb up to their dusty, dark attic in their big old Victorian house and we would take out their Ouija board and sit close together on the old wooden floor and in great solemnity ask questions and see what it spelled out. Now, I don't remember what we got, but I was looking for disembodied voices most of the time. But the only disembodied voice I actually ever got was my mother out in the yard calling me back home to supper. But there really is, and there really was, way more than that to spiritualism. And my special guest is here to shed some light on all of this. And today is a real treat. I'm so happy to be joined today by my good friend and one of New York's most knowledgeable social historians, Anthony Beloff. 
Anthony has a degree in architecture from Pratt and a master's in museum leadership from Bank Street College, and he's been deeply involved in historic preservation since, well, forever. He sat on the board of the Merchant's House Museum for many years, a truly fascinating historic house museum dating back to the 1830s and now open to the public. Anthony has appeared on many, many audio and video productions chronicling New York City history. And here's another secret. Anthony works with the Merchant's House Museum in another capacity. He coordinates and collects all the paranormal stories and experiences and occurrences of ghostly presences at the Merchant's House, which has been called Manhattan's most haunted house. So with all of that, oh, I welcome you, Anthony. I am so glad you're right here, and you are the perfect person to talk about spirits and the beyond. I mean, you have experienced a few things yourself, have you not? Hey, Carl, it's great to be here, and thanks for asking me. Experienced a few things, uh, just take out the word few, and I think it'd be a more accurate statement. It seems that there's a history of paranormal experiences running through both sides of my family. And that may be part of what it's all about. Dan Sturgis, who is our paranormal investigator at the Merchant's House, likes to say that paranormal occurrences are sort of like a car radio. Different car radios seem to pick up different channels, if you've ever noticed that. And it seems that maybe some people have an extra receptor on their antennas, which allows them to pick up things that other people don't see or hear. Well, it seems that there was a lot of that going on in the 19th century, don't you think? I'm so glad that we're finally able to sit down and really talk about this a little bit over my trademark cup of tea with the Gilded Gentleman. So I'm going to pour you a cup right here. How do you take your tea, Anthony? Do you like some milk or what would you like in it? You pour some and I'll try and drink it. (laughs) I'll pour you half a cup and see what you like. You know, let's just start. What exactly is spiritualism? Spiritualism. It's a very distinct system of belief that borders on the religious. It's a belief in the continued engagement or interaction between those who have passed on and those who remain here on this earthly plane. People who are spiritualists believe that the ghosts or essences, energies of those who have passed on into the other world are still cogent and coherent and interactive with us, and they can be contacted. We can interact with them on some level. And it seems to me that this idea of being able to talk to the spirits or talk to this other world that you mentioned, it started pretty early on in the 19th century, right? And it, as I recall, sort of kind of an unlikely place. How did this all start? Well, I'm going to backtrack this, Carl, by saying it started way before the 19th century. Ah. The the oldest ghost story we have in existence dates back to like the Middle Kingdom of Egypt. There has always been a strong belief in the interaction of those who have passed and those who still exist. If you look at old Celtic legends, if you look at the basis of what later sure. became Halloween, it's all about this this world of the dead and the world of the living. But in the early 19th century, things were really brewing. They call it the Second Great Awakening. And this was a period mostly in British and American culture where people were beginning to question the tenets of organized religion. Mm -hmm. They weren't satisfied with what they were being told, which was 
basically, especially coming from a Calvinist perspective, that we were bad, the concept of original sin, the idea that we were doomed to punishment, we were doomed to a bad afterlife unless we really, really behaved ourselves and we were also amongst the select who were chosen. There are some Christian faiths who believe that heaven is confined to a very finite set of spaces. And so you're lucky if you make it. It's kind of like uh, admission into one of the better colleges. So that's fascinating that it started so early. But this practice that seems so deeply prevalent in the 19th century of holding seances, these formal callings up of, of the spirits, that was a new thing in early 19th century America. I'm going to say it was a new thing for the common people. People in the aristocracy, people who didn't have anything else to do since they weren't raising crops and trying to not prevent themselves from starving to death, could dapple around with spiritualists. You, you look back at Mesmer's work in the 18th century. He wasn't just a hypnotist. But yes, for the common, let's say, middle-class person, that was very much a 19th century phenomenon. But I'm so curious, at the beginning of the 19th century, it seems like this, this notion of formal seances actually took hold and grew. Will you talk a little bit about how that actually happened? Specifically, there's a region in New York State, on the far west side of New York State, the Genesee Valley and around there, called the Burnt Out District. And we have to look at a specific house in a specific town, Hydesville, New York, uh, in the winter of 1847 and 1848, to really see the beginning of spiritualism. What happened? That involves two sisters uh, named Kate and Maggie Fox. And they were having fun with their mom, who was very superstitious. And they were staging little occurrences in their very, very simple, very humble home. They were dropping apples downstairs. They were learning how to trigger little creaks uh, in the structure of the house. And their mom was getting freaked out, basically. She was wondering what was going on. And so Kate and Maggie planned for a sort of a, a swan song or a, a finale on the evening of March 31st, which uh, 1848, which is the, uh, the eve of April Fool's Day. And they really went to town with this and they told their mother that they thought they could contact somebody from the beyond. And their mother swallowed it hook, line and sinker. She believed everything that was going on. And the girls started feeling regretful that they had done this, but they didn't know how to tell her it was just a joke because she had gotten too deeply involved with this. And in the next few days, the next few weeks, their mom was bringing people over to the house so that they could witness these same phenomena. And before they realized it, Kate and Maggie had both become not only mediums and spiritualists, but they were buried in a hole which they had dug so deeply they couldn't get themselves out of it. And it's just it's so fascinating to me that the whole world at the time, and certainly around Hydesville, was, was ready to hear them. They were ready to watch them contact other spirits. And it, it does seem like it spiraled out of control very, very quickly. You know, you and I were talking recently ab about this, and it, it seems 
that there was a real similarity too between the this and the Salem witchcraft trials. Yes, it was a few young girls who let their imaginations run wild with them and very likely had ulterior motives. Uh, we don't need to talk about Salem right now, but it's been pretty much proven that uh, this was a land grab where they were trying to get land from other families who they defamed. Uh, with the Fox sisters, at first it was just fun, but then their older sister, Leah, who was already in her 30s, she was about 20 years older than the other two, realized that there was money to be made from this. Leah was a single parent and really struggling to pay the bills. And she saw the opportunity to capitalize on these rapscallion activities of her two younger sisters. And really the whole thing just snowballed from that point. They wound up in New York City. They traveled the country. There was a lot of uh, controversy about whether or not they were genuine. But I do want to interject that through all of this, what appears to have been purely hokey and uh, opportunistic in order to gain money, the girls were able to deliver messages to people that were quite shockingly spot on. They were able to describe how their questioner's beloved, dearly departed had passed. They could give really detailed events and occurrences, and no one's ever been able to explain that part of it. So they said they were cracking their toe joints and they were creating all sorts of bumps and such, but yet they were coming up with information that really, really touched close to the core. I think that's one of the most fascinating things about the whole thing, because we see that uh, again and again in so many of these uh, mediums and spiritualists were, were debunked and defrauded, but yet every once in a while there seemed to be something about it that actually rang true. But but as we've said, the country, or there was something in the population that was really ready to receive this. When we look at mid-century, and, and really we should say whether one really believes or not, the spiritualist movement was pretty hard to ignore. It was was not an organized religion, but but certainly associations and camps and retreats and meetings of all sorts. They sprang up all over the country. And even newspapers came out that were devoted to this movement. For example, there was the the Spiritual Telegraph, which began mid-century in 1852. Uh, and that came out of this conference called the New York Conference for the Investigation of Spiritual Phenomena. And then that was supplanted later on by a paper called The Banner of Light which started in 1857 and sort of remarkably went on for 50 years. I I love that that paper actually even had its resident medium that you, for whom you could receive messages, and there were free seances three times a week, and you could even consult the paper for a listing to find your own. And fascinatingly, uh, I found a listing that Katie Fox even had an ad in one of them for uh, her services. But all of this kind of leads up to... Really one of the greatest drivers, I think, of spiritualism, which, of course, was the Civil War, with so many dead. There were parents and husbands and wives and mothers all wanted to contact their departed from a war that, that claimed well over 600,000 lives. Now, this desire to contact the beyond was not just centered with the common folk. It seems that seances occurred more than once in the White House itself. Perhaps the most famous seances that were conducted in the White House were actually those by Mary Todd Lincoln after her husband had assumed the presidency in 1861. 
President and Mrs. Lincoln had suffered the loss of, of children as well. Their four-year-old son, Eddie, had died from tuberculosis in 1850, and their beloved son, Willie, actually died while Lincoln was in office at only age seven, and he died of typhoid fever. And only one of their four sons was to outlive Mrs. Lincoln. Lincoln began to consult Washington mediums and spiritualists to connect with her sons, or try to, and invited several of the mediums to conduct, uh, it seems there were about eight seances in the Red Room of the White House. And reports indicated that at least at one of them, perhaps more, uh, President Lincoln himself was actually in attendance. And it seems that the Fox sisters, here we are again, Anthony, the Fox sisters again enter the picture because it was reported that Mrs. Lincoln consulted Maggie Fox in a clandestine meeting and seance uh, up in Boston in uh, Fox's parlor. I guess I guess the Fox sisters' names just happen to be in the White House Rolodex. I, I don't know. But it seems that the White House seances were on some level successful, depending on how we define that. And Mrs. Lincoln actually reported to her sister that Willie would come to her in a manifestation that would periodically appear nightly by her bed. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm feel, starting to feel this sort of mysterious chill in here, and the window is not open. Um, maybe I need to um, refill our teacups and heat up that tea. So let me refill our cups, Anthony, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Mrs. Lincoln and her apparitions after we take just a short break. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I'm joined today by historian Anthony Beloff. Following the beyond tragic assassination of the president, Mary Lincoln turned even more devoutly towards spiritualism and posed for William Mumler, a photographer who pioneered one of the newer developments in the spiritual movement, and that was spirit photography in the early 1860s. Now, Anthony, what was spirit photography all about? Okay, first of all, let's talk about that tea. It could use a little something extra to take the chill off my bones. <laughs> so while you're pouring that, let's talk about spirit photography. It's an interesting phenomenon. You mentioned William Mumler. He is probably the best known of all the early spirit photographers. He was a, a photographer in the 1860s in Boston, and he was trying to get himself established. Am I going to call him a charlatan? Uh, I can't say that definitively because his work has never been disproved. But all the indications are that he really knew what he was doing and he figured out a way 
of getting double exposures onto a photographic plate. Remember, this isn't roll film that you send out to the corner pharmacy. Of course, I'm dating myself by saying that. <laughs> oh, I remember them. But this was a glass plate that had to be treated in a special way. And suddenly one day he took a photograph of a woman and lo and behold, there behind her was an image of somebody who she claimed to recognize as one of her deceased family members. A couple of other times this happened. And little by little, Mumler starts getting this reputation uh, for being able to capture spirits in his camera. Now, we, again, we need to bear in mind that this is the mid-19th century. This was all new stuff. Mm -hmm. People couldn't even really figure out how a locomotive worked. Mm -hmm. So when you pointed a camera at somebody and some dim image from the beyond appeared standing behind them, in the 19th century, this was very plausible. Now, of course, we can explain this stuff. But the average person back then certainly could not. And Mumler suddenly found himself in the money. The average person was willing to pay up to a dollar for a photographic portrait. But Mumler could charge $10 for one. And so just went to town with this thing. So much so that the accusations of fraud began. People began investigating him. One very well-known Boston photographer, J.W. Black, decided he wanted to investigate him. And so he went to Mumler's studio, identified himself. Mumler knew who he was. And Mumler took him through all the steps. He took the glass plate, which Black inspected, and saw that there was no tampering with the plain glass plate. Mumler spread the chemicals on it. He exposed the plate. They went through the development process together. And sure enough, standing there behind Black was the figure of a kind of a ghostly apparition. Mm -hmm. Black was absolutely speechless. He could not explain what happened, but he still thought it was a fake. And one of the most famous photographs that Mumler did, right, was actually uh, Mary Todd Lincoln uh, with supposedly an image of the president. Oh, it's a very famous photograph. And uh, interestingly enough, for those trivia fans out there, that happens to be the last photograph of Mary Todd Lincoln ever taken. Clearly, come on, let, let's, let's get real about this. This was bogus, but we still to this day don't know exactly how he did it. On the other hand, Mary Todd Lincoln wrote to people how much comfort this photograph brought her. So, you know, for 10 bucks was a lot of money in 1865, 1868, whenever it was, but still the amount of comfort it brought her Butler felt that he was doing people a service. Oh, I completely agree. And I think that's a fascinating point. And in a way, exactly what you just said, if there's sort of a theme through all of this that we are trying to pinpoint, it's, it's really likely that. I think it's so important to say that despite the, the frauds, and that, of course, can all be argued, if there was some level of comfort provided or something positive amidst all of this tremendous grief, then perhaps that is the most important thing. But we are certainly not here, of course, to make judgments. But now we're sort of moving into the years post-Civil War, and that actually leads us to our final experience with Commodore Vanderbilt that I promised at the very top of the show. Now, 
Cornelius Vanderbilt had been born in 1794 and grew up in a pretty modest family in Staten Island. But by the end of the 1860s, he was the richest and arguably the most powerful commercial man in America. His fortune was estimated in today's money, it probably would have been somewhere around $200 billion. That's a B, not an M, $200 billion. So as a boy, he started working on his father's, in his father's ferry business, and then he went on to build his his own steam ferry and shipping business, and then, of course, perhaps most famously of all, took over and built the nation's rapidly growing railroad network. I think his personality, he was pretty plain spoken. He was, I think it's pretty clear to say, a little rough around the edges. Uh, he was deeply ambitious, of course. But what's important here is he was completely a self-made man. He would married his first cousin and, astonishingly, produced 13 children. And his sons, and grandsons then went on to create the great Gilded Age Vanderbilt Empire, including, of course, the Grand Chateaus along Fifth Avenue and, of course, up in Newport, uh, the cottages like Marble House and the Breakers, and even down in North Carolina, the great Biltmore is a, is a Vanderbilt house. Uh, but for our story today, we actually meet the Commodore as he was getting a little older. He was moving on. In 1868, the Commodore was 74 years old, and his health was not great. It was declining, although still one of his favorite pastimes was to continue to race his horses on the long open stretches uh, in Central Park or on the tracks in, in Upper Manhattan. But Commodore Vanderbilt was also deeply superstitious, and he was a practicing spiritualist. The Commodore's son, who was named George Washington Vanderbilt, one of his sons, uh, had died in 1863 of tuberculosis during the Civil War, and, and Vanderbilt wanted to contact him in some way. He also, at one point, was completely convinced that he was haunted himself by two different spirits. One was a young boy who had died who was crushed by a team of Vanderbilt horses. And another was a railroad worker who he claimed appeared before him after he'd been killed by a railroad engine. So some, some really haunting spirits there. And to rid himself of the spirits, he consulted a particular medium. We only know her today. Her name was Mrs. Tufts. She was a local Staten Island woman to whom Vanderbilt gave a great deal of money to help rid his soul of these particular visions. But I'm going to take you to a particular instance on a particular day. On a bright spring day of 1868, the Commodore sat perhaps anxiously awaiting the arrival of not one, but two new spiritualists that it had been recommended that he see. At the appointed hour, his doorbell rang, and two young women were ushered in. They were both strikingly attractive. The Commodore, no doubt, immediately noticed that. 30-year-old Victoria Woodhull and her 22-year-old sister Tennessee Claflin had just entered the life of Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, Victoria Woodhull was, bar none, one of the most curious and really truly fascinating women in 19th century American history, and she deserves a whole show, which she will get one day, I do promise you that. But here, what you had was a deeply independent woman, a dedicated suffragist, and a woman who wanted to be president. Now, Anthony, we've talked about so many things, and I, I know we agree on how fascinating Victoria was. 
This this woman is amazing. She was born out uh, in the Ohio wilderness in Homer, Ohio, in 1838 into abject poverty. She only attended school for a few years. Her mother died young. She was very close to her youngest sibling, her sister, Tennessee or Tenny, and that's the other sibling you referred to. They uh, had to get out of Homer really fast because her father, who was an absolute creep, set fire to their grist mill in order to collect the insurance and was found out. So he was going to be arrested for arson and fraud. And at a very young age, he put, her father put both Victoria and Tenny to work in sideshows and carnivals and that sort of thing. Victoria said that she felt that she had psychic abilities. And she claimed that her familiar was no one other than Demosthenes, the famous Greek philosopher, who apparently gave her advice all through her earlier life. So in the late 1860s, Victoria and Tenney found themselves back in New York City, and they set themselves up as clairvoyants. And Tenney did a lot of body work, and you probably hear the quotes around that, where she worked with magnetism, healing, curing people. It's such an incredible story, Anthony, to hear that. And it, and it doesn't end there, as we will certainly see. But I think it's pretty safe to say that Victoria, at least at this particular period, 1868, was just really in the right place at the right time. She knew the Commodore's proclivities, shall we say, for spiritual indulgence. And very shortly after meeting him, she was, in fact, conducting private seances at her home nearby on Great Jones Street in her, you know, gaslit parlor and summoning the spirit of the Commodore's mother. Now, Victoria's sister, Tenny, which you certainly alluded to, she she built herself as a spiritual magnetic healer, and she's the one that tended to the healing of the Commodore's physical being. And I, I think we should probably just leave that at that. However, Vanderbilt was was really distributing significant amounts of money to the sisters at that point for their various assistance, spiritual and otherwise. Victoria often advised him on business matters, claiming, of course, messages from the beyond, uh, of which she seemed actually to be quite astute in her predictions. Now, the truth, and I find this fascinating, it seems lay actually more in the fact that she was connected to the network of, we'll say, ladies of the evening, with whom many of Vanderbilt's rivals actually were keeping company. And thus, they were able to share and she was able to extract valuable bits of insider business information. Now, Vanderbilt was so confident in the predictions of Victoria that he even advised, I love this story, one particular investor who asked him the best way on how to handle her money. He said, well, do as I do, consult the spirits. I think it's a little unclear how much Vanderbilt really understood what was going on or not. But nonetheless, Victoria found another advantage in this relationship with Vanderbilt in that Vanderbilt often shared with her his ideas and plans. And she then would take that information back to her husband, her then husband, um, allowing him, of course, to invest or make some surprisingly advantageous decisions, which, of course, resulted in piles of cash. 
Well, the point of all this is that Victoria had a much larger plan than just, you know, extracting what she could from the Vanderbilt coffers. And we alluded to that earlier on. She felt strongly about women's rights. And I think a really interesting aspect of this incredible proliferation of female mediums and spiritual healers was it was one well one way fraudulent or not for a woman to really make a significant amount of money on her own to really buy her independence and develop a level of visibility and just break away from the societal bonds and she did a great deal of writing and of course speaking and and ended up on the platform with Susan B Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton she really had a tremendous voice one of her quotes which i love was let women issue a declaration of independence sexually and absolutely refuse to cohabitate with men until they are acknowledged as equals in everything. I I just, regardless of whatever her methods, Victoria Woodhull was an incredibly um, modern, modern woman. Now, Anthony, I have to ask you as we're we're starting to end here, whatever happened to those Fox sisters? Oh, those pesky Fox sisters. (laughs) Well, as the century progressed, they sort of became old hat. Um, mediums were appearing who could tilt tables and make apparitions appear and things flying around the room. And the Fox sisters were really beginning to seem anticlimactic at that point. Uh, and combined with the notoriety, all of the controversy, living their lives really in a goldfish bowl, it began to affect them as well. Uh, Leah, the older sister, became extremely dominating, and there were times when the younger sisters wanted to have no more to do with all this, and Leah really kept them on a very short leash and forced them to continue to produce paranormal occurrences long after they wanted to do it anymore. Sadly, alcohol became a real problem with both of them. And finally, in October of 1888, Maggie had had it. And so she called a large gathering, a conference, a presentation, what have you, at the Academy of Music in New York, where she planned to publicly denounce spiritualism. Now, it also didn't hurt that the New York world paid her $1,500 to do so. But she did reveal their techniques of cracking joints and, and other things in order to produce the supernatural sounds which uh, no one up until then could explain. And she was just filled with regret. She said, my sister Katie and myself were very young children when Mm -hmm. this horrible deception began. And so she wanted out. Maggie regretted her denunciation of spiritualism, and she tried to recant it a year later. But the damage was done, at least for them, for the Fox sisters. And they faded away into oblivion and death from alcohol abuse in the 1890s. But spiritualism did not in and of itself die out. People wanted to believe so badly that they just sort of moved on from the Fox sisters being exposed and adopted other people and other mediums and other techniques. Well, certainly, I I agree with that. And as the century ended, there were certain factors, certainly the lower rate of infant mortality that 
had had helped, and also the Civil War was sort of fading into the distance. But spiritualism did continue on. There were a number of spiritual communities that were founded. One of them, one of the most famous, is Lilydale, which came into being uh, in the very late 1880s and 1890s. What I find fascinating about that is the the Fox sisters' original cabin from Hydesville, New York, was actually transported to Lilydale, uh, I guess as kind of a shrine, and it stayed there until, sort of surprisingly, the 1950s. Anyway, my gosh, Anthony, what an incredible journey this has really been. And I think whether one is indeed able to communicate with worlds unseen or just falls victim to some of these shady 19th century practitioners that we've been talking about. The fact of the matter is it all boils down to really just how much one wants to believe. Now, that Ouija board that I used to play with, with my friends, those were actually originally called spirit talking boards before the commercial uh, version was actually made in the 1890s. And it really found a bit of a renaissance even up to the 1920s. People were using Ouija boards, and I suppose they can still even be found today. But as for those disembodied voices that I was looking for with my friends, you know, it's it's just interesting that sometimes if I'm really quiet and and I think about it, I really can still hear my mother calling me home for dinner. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Anthony. I can't thank you enough for joining me today on the show. Well, it was an absolute pleasure and one of these days, you and I will have to have a chat about all the things that have happened to me that I can't explain in the 20th and 21st centuries. So there's still plenty of unexplainable stuff going on out there. Well, we will dangle that for uh, the Gilded Gentlemen's listeners for another future show for sure. And to all my listeners, please join me every two weeks for a new episode of the Gilded Gentlemen stories, secret style, and seduction from the Gilded Age, the Belle Epoque, and late Victorian and Edwardian England. And I invite you to join me on Patreon and become a patron of the show. I truly cannot do it without the support of my loyal patrons. So please visit patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold.